I'll invite you to turn with me to Exodus chapter 20 this morning. We're walking through the book of Exodus. Last week we paused, if you remember, to stare at the sights and sounds of Mount Sinai. God displays his splendor and his majesty, and as he displays it, it It lays us bare for our own unworthiness. We realize from that sermon, from that text, just how deceptive sin really is and how it separates us from God, how it's necessary that we should have a mediator who would climb to Mount Sinai and deliver us from the chasm that exists. We learned that that mediator is Jesus Christ. And so, by faith in him, we do not meet the Lord at Mount Sinai. Rather, we meet him at Mount Zion. And so, as Christians, I want to tell you as we approach the Ten Commandments, we will study them as a husband and a wife study their marriage vows. Because these commandments teach us about the heart of the God that we love. How will I lovingly serve my beloved, my king? Let's read Exodus chapter 20, verses 1 and 2. And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. This is God's word. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we pray for the ministry and help of your Holy Spirit. You know our hearts fully. You know our distractions. You know our tendency towards selfishness. Our tendency towards missing you and seeing ourselves. We pray this day that you would give us ears to hear what your Spirit says to your people. I pray that you would be willing again to use a wretched, sinful, crooked stick like me to point this narrow way. It's a beautiful way to our Lord Jesus. Amen. For those who had spent their lives under the harsh rule of a brutal taskmaster, this principle was really obvious. The law of the king reflects the character of that king. And under the reign of Pharaoh, that principle was so obvious, but it was always consistently dreadfully negative. Example number one, Exodus chapter one, a new king arose who didn't know Joseph. And from a heart of fear, he reasoned that the Hebrew people are too many, that they're a potential threat. And so he makes a law, Hebrew midwives, you kill all the baby boys the girls can live. When that law proves to be ineffective to stop population explosion, he turns and he makes a law to his own people. He says, Exodus 1.22, every son that is born to the Hebrews, you, my Egyptians, you shall cast them into the Nile, but every daughter shall live. It's a law that reflects the character of a king who has no value for human life. Example number two, Exodus 5, Moses returns from his exile in Midian, and he and Aaron go to see the king Pharaoh. 
And they say, the God of the Hebrews has met with us. Please let us just go a three days journey into the wilderness that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God. Pharaoh reads it as laziness. His response, a law. The Hebrew slaves must make their same bricks every day. We will no longer supply the straw to help them. Go get it yourselves. That law produces more fear, more beatings, more demand for more bricks, more cruelty. It's a law that reflects the character of the king who sees no dignity in human work, no willingness to provide rest, and no interest in that the Lord God would be worshipped. The laws of the king always reflect the character of the king. A principle was painfully obvious, and for the people of Israel, it has always been crushingly negative. Suppressed subjects always understand this principle and grieve it. Pharaoh is a kidnapper. He's a killer. He's a thief and a liar, and he has no interest in God's creation design. Yahweh says, I'm nothing like Pharaoh. I'm a benevolent sovereign. I am a merciful father. I'm a covenant-keeping Lord. I have created you to thrive under a relational joy of a loving father. And those physical pictures at Sinai point us to a spiritual reality. And that is, if you belong to the Lord Jesus Christ by faith, God has delivered you from oppression of sin and Satan, who, like Pharaoh, is a kidnapper and a killer and a thief and a liar. And God brought his people to Mount Sinai, and he's brought you here to this place as well. And we should expect that his law would reflect his character. And you must remember his character if you're ever to understand the words of the Ten Commandments. Your God is not a thief who kidnapped you, who mistreats you for selfish ends. In fact, Yahweh is a loving father who is heartbroken that his people were ever enslaved. And so he draws near to us to say, I made you, I understand you better than you even understand yourself. My laws are not arbitrary. They are not self-serving. My law proceeds from a tender heart which desires your good. Friends, I'm asking you today to think, to reflect as freed slaves brought into the relationship with a father. Our text teaches us that the law reflects the character of the lawgiver. Therefore, God's law begins with the gospel. And so this morning, we're going to break the text down into three headings. His voice, his name, and his acts. We begin with his voice. You remember the events which led up to chapter 19 and the start of chapter 20. The Lord came down on Mount Sinai. He summoned Moses up to meet him. And then at verse 21, he said, go back down and meet with the people and warn them, don't come any closer. And so up to this point, what Israel has learned about God, they've learned by watching with their eyes and hearing from Moses as he explained Yahweh. And we're told now in chapter 19 at the bottom that the people heard God's voice to Moses. 
To their ears from the bottom of the mountain, it sounded like thunder rumbling up there at the top. And something changes here when we come to chapter 20. It's quite deliberate and it's quite consistent with what God said was going to happen. He said, they're going to hear my voice. Look at verse 1. God spoke all these words saying, which is to tell us that everything from here down to verse 17 is God's voice directly to his people. How do I know? Because if you look further down at verse 18, seeing the sights and the sounds, the people stood far off and they said to Moses, you speak to us and we will listen, but do not let God speak to us lest we die. They're terrified. And verse 1 is so simple that we would gloss over it. God speaks with an audible voice to his people at the base of the mountain and they get it. They understand. Friends, imagine that there is a little bit of a tension here. There's sights and sounds of thunder and smoke and rumbling from this mountain. And yet here's a God who speaks with warm intentions. He says, you belong to Yahweh. So that the issue of authority is immediately settled instantaneously. God doesn't ask them, hey, how do you think this relationship should work? He's not taking a straw poll on how public opinion feels in his day. What do y'all think would be some good laws, some rules that you might govern yourselves by? No. God spoke these words and people listened. And here's the voice of authority. The voice of a God who rules over us with extraordinary kindness We're going to come back to this kindness in just a moment. In his book, Surprised by Joy, C.S. Lewis describes his transformation from, from atheist to theist to Christian. And it was only after that move to Christianity that he recognizes that he was not the hunter, but God was the hunter. And he was like the deer who had been hunted And he confesses, says Lewis, that he knew that if God was real, then he would have to rule over him, that that God would have authority over him. He says that unredeemed man almost always knows deep down that there is a God. And at some level, he fears that if there's a God, then that God will rule over him. That God certainly requires obedience from his subjects. Lewis realized that if God was true. He would not let his subjects rule themselves, for they would make chaos of it. When the people of Israel hear the voice of God, there is suddenly no doubt. Yahweh is real, and he has come near to us, and he has full authority over us. And so the sights and sounds of Mount Sinai, which accompany the voice of God, were meant to break through the delusion that sin is not that big a deal. Where sin has fooled us into thinking it's not so so serious. God's basically saying, listen, left to rule yourselves, you would create laws that are based on the character of you. And what is your character? Well, you turn yourself back over to sin and to Satan and to Pharaoh. And somewhere along the way, back to your re-enslavement, you'd eat each other alive. What does this mean for us? It means precisely what it meant to them. You're a servant of the God who made you. 
a subject of the sovereign Lord. So that you and I don't have authority to pick and choose which parts of God's word we will agree with. Which aspects we would choose to obey. Who would dare hear the commands from God's voice and say, no, I think I know better. Moreover, his voice tells us not only his authority as one who is God more powerful than me, but as my loving father. His authority is one who is more wise than me. God's voice of authority speaks in ways that are actually for my good. One pastor says we need to learn not to think of a peevish God who withholds good from us, but rather a good God who knows that his grace leads to obedience and obedience leads to blessing. Sinai is then an instruction on how you and I might thrive as his children. The law reflects the character of the lawgiver. Therefore, God's law begins with the gospel, his voice. Now let's examine his name. All of us have had this experience, I'm sure. You've heard of someone's name for a lot of years, and then suddenly, perhaps unexpectedly, that person walks up to you and introduces themselves by name. And it is for you like a light bulb as their, their, their face and the stories you've heard about them suddenly are joined together. The people of Israel have heard God's name for years. They've heard generational stories. They've heard Moses speak of Yahweh. They've seen the Red Sea parting and wilderness wandering. And now, with his own voice, Yahweh comes forward and he says, I am the Lord, your God. If God's voice speaks to his authority, then his name is what really speaks to his character. Every time you see in the Bible the, the capital letters L-O-R-D, what appears to be an odd font against the others, the Bible translator is cluing us in to the fact that God here is using his covenant name, his divine name. And they've heard the name before, but, but now with his own voice, he introduces himself and he says, I am Yahweh. By this name, God means to say, I am the great I am. I am the sovereign, the almighty, the supreme, self-existent, eternal, unchangeable God. You and I met him back in chapter 3. When at the burning bush, he spoke to Moses and Moses keeps asking, well, Lord, who am I that I should go and, and, and tell Pharaoh to let your people go? And he says, it doesn't matter who you are. It's who I am. And then he goes on to say, the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever. And thus I am to be remembered throughout generations. And then we meet him again in chapter 6. The people of Israel, you remember, they begin to complain to Moses. Moses, your words to Pharaoh are doing more harm than they are good. And Moses goes back to the Lord and he says, God, what are you doing? And God spoke to Moses and said to him, I am Yahweh. I appeared to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob as God Almighty. But by my name, Yahweh, I did not make myself known to them. 
I also established my covenant with them to bring them to the land of Canaan, the land to which they lived as sojourners. Moreover, I have heard the groanings of my people of Israel, whom the Egyptians hold as slaves, and I have remembered my covenant. And then the God whose name is built on the Hebrew verb to be begins to say all the things that he will do. The great I am says, I will bring, I will deliver, I will redeem, I will take you to be my people, I will be your God, I will bring you into the land, I will give it to you. My very name means I'm faithful to my promises. And so to a people who are in the midst of the greatest transition of their entire lives, the most uncertain days that they have ever faced. His introduction at the foot of Mount Sinai is an introduction which suddenly casts an air of certainty to a people who are extremely uncertain. Oh, the God who speaks to us is the God who spoke to our great-great-grandfather 600 years ago. This is the God who promised to build a nation out of one man. The God who foretold that we would be slaves in this place for 400 years. This is the God who promised to deliver us out of slavery. And he did. This is the God who promised to give us the land of Canaan. That's where we're going. I'm Yahweh. I'm your source of life and hope. But more than that, I'm your hope for life eternal. I wonder if you are not so different from the people who stand shaking at the foot of Mount Sinai. Maybe you, like them, are in a, a season of uncertainty. Perhaps for you, like them, it's the greatest transition of your entire life. Or maybe you're aging and you feel scared about it. Maybe your body is weak and your health is uncertain and the path ahead feels frightening. Some of you may have lost things or people which represented stability to you. Maybe there's a life transition ahead. Graduation, the uncertainty of a job. Maybe it's the squeeze of an impending recession. You know, it used to be easier to make my paycheck run from here to there. And now it's harder and harder and I can barely make my paycheck stretch to the next one. And so I wonder if you might hear what was heard at the foot of Mount Sinai. And that is whatever speaks into your life of uncertainty, the name Yahweh speaks certainty. How can I tell? Well, you notice, don't you, that he attaches something profoundly personal to his name. He says in verse 2, I am the Lord, your God. As if with that name, he reaches from Mount Sinai with his finger. As two million people face the mountain. And he says in second person singular, I am your God, I am your God, I am your God, and I am your God. Jesus is that same God. 
which is why he describes himself by God's name. I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world. Before Abraham was, I am. I am the resurrection and the life. I am the way, the truth, and the life. And so you begin to recognize how deeply comforting it is and how deeply personal Yahweh took on flesh to prove that he is your personal God. Three implications concerning God's name. First, the character of God reflected in the law predates the Ten Commandments. In other words, this God who was in the beginning, this same God, extends on beyond the Ten Commandments so that these commands have eternal significance. The law which expresses eternal attributes is eternally relevant. None of it goes away. Because none of his character goes away. And so as a grand expression of his holiness, he gives us these commands so that we, his children, might learn what it means to reflect that holiness. Would you dare shun the beauty of that eternal character? Would you embrace it? And go, I long for people to see the eternal character of my God. The second implication... God connects his name to his law so that we might understand that to break that law is, in a sense, a kind of assault on God himself. His character is is woven into this law. And to rise up in hatred of any of those commands is to say, I hate this aspect of my God. Thirdly, final implication, when he says, I am the Lord That emphatically means that you are not. It emphatically means that you are not the Lord. I wonder if there aren't places in your own life where the Holy Spirit is in the process of teaching you. You don't reign over that. I do. You don't control that. I do. You won't be able to fix that or hinder that. Or change that. I'm Yahweh. I can handle it. How would it change your tensions? How would it change your your fears or your striving to remember that this God who gives us his name is also powerful? He's been taking care of things long before you got on the scene and he'll be just fine after we leave. It's a great comfort to know that he is personal at ground level. The law reflects the character of the lawgiver. Therefore, the law of God begins with the gospel, his voice, his name. We close with his acts. And what I mean by this, these are the acts of his salvation. Look at the end at at chapter 20, verse 2. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. And so with that one statement, he summarizes everything that he's done from chapter 1 to chapter 19. So for those who are standing at the base of Mount Sinai, seeing sights, hearing sounds, suddenly all the dots connect for them. Every miracle that we have seen up to this point provided by the God whose voice we hear. 
Every plague we've witnessed, a judgment upon the enemies of God whose voice we hear. The bitter waters that we complained about, they were made sweet by the God whose voice we hear. The hunger that we fussed about, that we were so unsatisfied with. He met us with daily manna. That's the God of the voice that we hear. In our thirst again in chapter 17, this is the voice of the God who stood on the rock and allowed Moses to strike him instead of us. The voice of the God who quenched your thirst. And so he's introduced himself as God and as Lord. But with these words, he now introduces himself as Savior, as Redeemer. Not just because he's brought them out of Egypt, but because he has lifted them from slavery. And so the preface to the Ten Commandments is God's way of saying, I have liberated you so that you can serve me, not out of fear and dread, but out of love and gratitude. I gave you life in the past. I want to teach you to follow my ten words. Because in these ten words there is life in your future. Of course, these physical pictures correspond to spiritual realities. What God said at Mount Sinai is essentially the same as that which he has said to those who place their faith in Christ. I'm the Lord your God. I'm the one who brought you out of the Egypt of your sin, out of the house of slavery to Satan. And in Christ, I am the God who laid myself upon the rock and I struck myself with the rod of my own judgment and I freed you eternally from divine justice. I'm your king. I'm your savior. But let's be really clear. I am not like the former kings that you have served. I'm not the thief. I'm not the kidnapper who mistreats you to selfish ends. I'm a loving father and I'm still brokenhearted that you were enslaved. I made you. I understand you better than you understand yourself. My laws are not arbitrary. They are not self-serving. My law proceeds from the heart of a father that longs for the good of his children. And so I invite you to know me, not as a slave knows his master, but as a son knows his father. My law reflects my character. But God says, I'm not embarrassed of that. Because my character is for your good. That's why it begins with the gospel. I'm going to close with this. There's a great deal of confusion about how Christians should understand the Ten Commandments. In what way do we use them? What's the proper way for a Christian who understands this side of the cross? I'm aware of Jesus' obedience. I'm aware of my own failures to the Ten Commandments. But how do I deal with God's moral law? A few weeks back, I mentioned that Israel came to Mount Sinai very much unaware of their own filth. Unaware of how sin had separated them from God. And then all of the sights and the sounds of Mount Sinai were a, a preparation for the giving of the Ten Commandments. But Paul makes it crystal clear in Romans chapter 3, verse 20. No fallen man could ever be saved by obedience to the law 
Because no fallen man has ever been obedient to the Lord. But then Paul says, that law is a very useful tool to make you conscious of your sin. That is true before the cross, and it is true after the cross. Donald Gray Barnhouse was the pastor of 10th Presbyterian Church in Philadelphia from 1927 to 1960. And he explained the illustration this way. The law is like a mirror. Now, the purpose of a mirror is to reveal to you that your face is dirty, but the purpose of the mirror is not to wash your face. And so when you look in the mirror and you find that your face is dirty, you do not then reach up and grab the mirror off the wall and begin to try to rub your face with the mirror as if it was a cleansing agent. No, the purpose of the mirror is to drive you to the water. The purpose of the law is to drive you to the living water, who is Jesus, who is the Savior. God had already saved his people. If you know Jesus Christ, then he has already saved you from your sins. And the Ten Commandments could never save you from your sins, not because they're not perfect, but because you're very much imperfect And you have never been perfectly obedient. But there are two lessons that the law teaches us. First, we learn what actions and behaviors are beautiful to our Father in heaven. And then secondly, we learn to see more clearly the filth of our remaining sin. And then as I understand the filth of my remaining sin more clearly, I'm driven back to Christ again and again for cleansing Not so that I can know how severe my shortcomings are and just wallow there. No. But because I belong to Christ, he has given to me his Holy Spirit, which shows me my sin and drives me to Christ and empowers me by his grace to increasingly throw off the sin that I just learned about in the mirror and to learn to live a life which is pleasing to the Father who saved me. You see, if the law is a mirror, then it is inviting you to understand beauty differently than you've understood it. I no longer want a filthy face. I want a face that's washed and cleansed by the blood of the cross. The law reflects the character of the lawgiver. That's why even the Ten Commandments, God's law begins with the gospel. Let's pray. So, Father, we pray that the rich beauty 